Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at this, your word tonight, your Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write to the Church of Rome all those years ago. And we pray that his words may speak to us and my words might also be uh, taken by your Holy Spirit and help us to grow more like you. Amen. Well, I've got an encouragement for you tonight, and I've got for you some challenges as well. Um, I don't know what you think the, the life of a follower of Jesus should look like. I don't know what you think it uh, should look like to the rest of society. We've already had one exercise tonight of thinking uh, and talking to others, but I would like you in your own minds, perhaps, to just take a moment to think, what would a non-Christian, in a non-Christian environment, what would they think a Christian should be like? It might be, it might be in your school, in your college, your place of work, the club that you are a part of, any non-Christian environment where you were having a discussion, or maybe they knew that you were a Christian, what would be their words that would describe what a Christian is like? Just give you 30 seconds to think about that. Well, of course, I took the modern way out of that and uh, I looked it up on Google. What do people think about Christians? What are the words that they would use to describe Christians? What are the common words used? Well, here we go. Judgmental. Hypocritical. Homophobic. Too political. Insensitive. And boring. Ouch. Well, whether these are correct or not, or is, is something that we can actually think about, well, Paul certainly seems to have other ideas concerning the followers of Jesus, what they should be like. We read that Paul shows us that uh, Jesus' followers are to be people who have got changed minds and behaviour with praise, humility, and service being characteristics. Well, as Alan said, we're in this series uh, to the Romans. We've uh, spent quite a few weeks in the chapters leading up to uh, the end of chapter 11, and it's been primarily about theology. It's been all about sins of the people, it's been about the promise that God had for his people, the Jewish people, and it's, uh, Paul had gone on to claim that Jesus is the Messiah that he had promised all those years ago, and that uh, Jesus died so that both Jews and Gentiles can receive salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and he met, this was made possible by what Paul calls the grace of God. And Paul had been pointing out that this was not something that any of us could earn. 
let alone himself. It's not by doing good works that uh, people can get salvation, but it's by faith in Jesus that you are saved. So that's the lead up, if you like, to this passage tonight. And you might like to turn to page 1139. Uh, We're in this uh, last few verses of chapter 11 from verse 33 through to chapter 12, verse 9. And it can be divided into two sections. Chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, a doxology of praise, it says in my Bible, and uh, then chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, a practical outworking of this life of faith. So firstly then, uh, chapter 11, verses uh, uh, 33 through to 36. Paul, having explained the doctrine of salvation, goes on to this glorious doxology. Look what he says. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So what Paul is saying here is that this grace of God is difficult to get our heads round. And it was for the people of Israel. So Paul points his listeners to the wisdom, the riches and the knowledge of God. Paul writes, God is to be glorified by mankind for this provision of Jesus and his death for all of mankind, which is why we should worship him and be encouraged. So we can be encouraged that we can worship this God who has provided this way of salvation for us. God has made a way for us to come back into relationship with him. Nothing that we can do, but by the gift of Jesus dying on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins, defeating death and rising again. And this, of course, is what we celebrated last Sunday, Easter Sunday. It should have been an encouragement to us. It will fire us up. But it should also have another effect upon us. It will challenge us as to how we are following Jesus, because this salvation is a gift of grace. However, this gift of Jesus' death on the cross isn't just for our salvation, isn't just for our future in heaven when we will be with God, but rather it's for the now and the future. So how will this influence and affect how we live? Well, Paul calls upon all of them in the Church of Rome to be holy, committed, humble, loving, and conscientious people of God. We are called to praise him. We can have a characteristic of praise that will be different to the world. As one commentator has said, in view of all that he has done, that's Jesus and promised, it is fitting that our lives should be devoted to him in wholehearted gratitude. So that's the first part. That's the, that's the encouragement to us. But then we come to chapter 12. And you will notice that little word right at the beginning of the sentence. Therefore. 
Paul loves the therefores. Therefore, as a result of all that, he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasurable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So he's urging them. He's urging them because of the grace that God has provided through the death of his son. Therefore, I urge you. What Paul is saying here is it's really important that you take this on board. However old we are, however long we've had faith in the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we can benefit from this urging. But what's the urging all about? Why should the Roman Christians be urged? And why should we care in our lives today? Well, Paul urges that it's, uh, it's urgent because of God's mercy. And we need urging as they did, because God has been so merciful to us. It's a reminder to all of us, God has been so merciful that he has forgot, forgiven us our sins and the result of this sin. Now, of course, it raises with us the question, do we fully understand the results of sin in the lives of ourselves and of mankind as a whole? Well, according to the Bible, the result of sin is separation from God, both in the present, that's in the life we walk here on earth now, and in the future when God comes to judge mankind. The effect of sin is also seen in creation and the decay of creation, the cause of bodily disease and broken relationships in society and families. It's seen in the actions of mankind down throughout history and the present day. And so, if I truly understand this, it raises the question, how grateful to God am I that he has provided a way for me to live in relationship with him? Because Jesus has died to take the punishment for my sin. Because of this situation, Paul is saying to these Christians in Rome how they should live. It's a practical outworking of this grace. And so Paul has gone from theology, that's the idea of sin and grace and Jesus' death, to practical outworkings in their lives. And that's what the rest of this sermon is going to be actually on. And so Paul appeals to these Roman Christians on how they should live their lives. That is, their bodies and minds. So let's have a look at this together then. What are Paul's instructions to these followers of Jesus? How are we to live? Well, firstly, we see in verse 1 that they are to offer their bodies or to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God to continue to give unreservedly in view of the graces given by God. But what does this mean to them and to us today? Well, for these Roman Christians, this would have been quite a shock. Because for many at this time, the important aspects of religion was concerned about the mind and the spirit. The body, the physical body, was looked down upon. The body was despised and rejected and so could be treated badly. 
But see here, for Paul, it's the first in the list of requirements for these Christians. And it's connected to the worship of God. Because he says it's a part of their spiritual worship of God. To offer to God their bodies as a living sacrifice, a priestly act. Now the word spiritual here can mean either reasonable or rational. So the implication is that it's truly reasonable and rational and important that they are to offer their bodies to God. Now this, for these uh, Roman Christians, would have been a revolutionary concept. It has the implication that their bodies are important to God and they aren't theirs anymore but belong to God himself. As one commentator says, Their bodies are no longer for our sole use, nor should they be instruments of wickedness. Chapter 6 and verse 13 of Romans. But they are to be dedicated entirely to him. And so in this way we are to bring our bodies into line with our inner beings, which are now controlled by the Holy Spirit, so that our whole lives are devoted entirely to God. So then, the spiritual act of worship isn't confined to the inward, abstract and mystical acts, but must include concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. And so I'd like to stress to us this evening that if our bodies belong to God, then this will influence how we think of them, and how we value them, and how we use them, and how we treat them. Think for a moment how in our society, down throughout the ages, people have treated the physical body. How society has viewed our bodies. How has this affected our self-image? The confidence or lack of confidence we have. Think about the ways bodies are used to sell things. The way they're used to form relationships, sexual implications. What we've subjected them to. Actions of abuse and health concerns. Overeating, undereating, overexercise, underexercise. Making our bodies a God whom we worship through what we spend our money on, appearance and clothes, the whole of the fashion industry, the selfie, the concerns that young people have concerning self image and beautiful bodies. Well, can I suggest that we, if we are followers of Jesus and are constantly offering our bodies as a sacrifice to God, then we'll want to offer the best that we can. This means that we will have to offer the uniqueness that God has made each one of us. We will all be different, both physically and emotionally, but we're all equal in God's sight. It will change how we consider other people's bodies and the way that they are treated. It releases us from a lot of pressures and concerns that this world and the society puts upon us. So John Stott says this, So authentic Christian discipleship will include both the negative mortification of our body's misdeeds and the presentation of its members to God. Now, Paul has already written about the sins of the flesh through human depravity in chapter 3, verse 13. He writes this, Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. 
And he also writes about how our bodies should be uh, instruments of righteousness in chapter 6, verse 13. He says this, Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. And we can do this if, as Paul states in verse 2, when we are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So secondly, we see in verse 2 that Jesus' followers are not to conform to the society that they live in. But what does Paul mean here? What does it look like? Well, Paul calls us to non-conformity and to holiness through a transformation and a renewing of your mind. In other words, what Paul is saying here is a complete change in how we think, which we see through Scripture. That's not a new thing for God's people. We read of it in, uh, in, in the Gospels, on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches us not to be conformed to this society in which we live. Now, the exciting and challenging aspect of following Jesus is that our behaviour is to be different from the world in which we live. Now, throughout history, this has been a major challenge to God's people, and it is today. It's a challenge for all of God's people of all ages not to be conformed to the patterns of the society in which we live. This can, be seen in the, this can be seen in the way we work, what we say, what we do, how we view material possessions, our security, our sexual behaviour, our relationships. If you think about it, what's our society governed by? Well, we know increasingly, don't we, the role of the media, Hollywood, and now, of course, the growth of the internet and social media, and how that sets the norms for our society and the way that people think. Well, Paul suggests we're not to be like this. Now, this issue is often seen for Christians as pressure on young people and the way that they are pressurised into the behaviour and thoughts of their peer group. But that is not just for young people. No, it's for all of us. Jesus calls all of us who follow him not to conform to the way the world thinks, the way it acts and the values. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why we see little growth within the church in England today. Perhaps it's because people outside in society don't see much difference between their society and us. Because what difference does following Jesus make to us that make us different. Now, I'd like to suggest that this should not be just in negative terms. So Christians don't do X and Y, whatever the X and Y may be, because that may well change through different times. To illustrate this, I'll illustrate this from a personal viewpoint. For me, in my teen years, Christians pointed this out as issues concerning cinema, drinking alcohol, and the way we spoke. We were told that Christians shouldn't do these things. Of course, there's a danger here of dry, negative legalism, which, of course, is the way with reference to the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments. 
Looking back, this is what I believe tended to happen in my youth. As Christian young people, we were instructed upon how we were to live. We were not to drink alcohol, go to pubs, dance, go to see films, or watch films that had swearing in it, to name just a few. But as I remember it, we were never given the reasons why we were to be so different to our peer group's behaviour. Paul, however, doesn't fall into this trap because he does give these Christians the reason. For he says in verse 2, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So what he's saying here is that if their minds are transformed and changed and their lives are different and holy, then they will be able to hear what God is saying to them in their time, which is really important if they are followers of Jesus. As I said, when there's little difference between the lives of Christians and non-Christians, we see little evidence of growth in the kingdom of God here on earth. But in fact, I would like to suggest we do see growth in the kingdom of God when Christian communities are acting out the way that Jesus taught us to love one another and to love our neighbours as ourselves in practical ways. So what then is going to help us to be different from those who don't love and follow Jesus? Well, Paul states that this is possible if our minds are transformed and changed. Of course, it begs the question, if Paul was with us tonight, I might well ask him, why must our minds be transformed? Well, the mind affects not only the way we behave, but our emotions and attitudes in life. We may act differently to the world in not doing things, but still have attitudes of selfishness, arrogance, pride, and covetousness. And so Paul then expands upon this point and develops what it will look like within the community of believers if we can test and improve what God's will is. And he does this by giving them instructions if you look through verses 3 to 8. Look what he says. They are to have a realistic understanding of who they are, both in positive terms and negative terms, according to how much faith they have. There's no room here for prima donnas or pride. So he lists some of the giftings that will be found within a community of believers, likened to a physical body which has many parts. So he lists prophets, serving, teaching, encouragement, leadership. And it isn't a finite list of gifts here to be found in the group of believers. There are other references to spiritual gifts for the Church of God in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. But Paul qualifies how they are to be used and what it should look like if the followers of Jesus have transformed minds and behaviour. So we read in verse 3 that they ought not to think more highly of themselves but with sober judgment. So there's no room for pride and self-importance in the local church. And those that God has equipped with gifts and faith are to use them for God's glory and to be done well. So there we have it tonight. That's what Paul is saying to these Christians at Rome all those years ago. But is this relevant to us today here at Trinity? In our time, in our place? Well, I believe it is, isn't it? It's very relevant to us as a community of believers. 
We are looking at this time, as has already been said in the notices, for more people to serve on the PCC. We're looking as a church for people to help with practical ways of running the church, ways of working with young people, being part of the holiday club for for, for the children in the August holidays, being part of internal and external work here of the church, using spiritual and practical gifts that God has given us. Why are we looking for that? So that God is glorified and his kingdom expands here in Norwich in our day. So then, let's conclude. What's our conclusion? Well, I started by saying I have an encouragement for you and I have challenges. Encouragingly, we can praise God that in his wisdom he has provided a way of salvation that doesn't depend upon our efforts but on the death and resurrection of Jesus. We can have Easter Sunday every day of the year. But secondly, we can submit our bodies and minds to God, being humble, but also recognising that we are given gifts by God, which we can use for God's glory in his local church, for his kingdom to come here in Norwich this day and the weeks ahead. Amen.